why don't you grab your Bibles? Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We'll be reading and I'll be preaching from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. So Mark 12. As Brother Carl said, the reading from the Psalms is complementary from the Old Testament, complementary to this portion of the New Testament. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We'll read all the way to verse 12. This is God's word. And he, that's Jesus, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that as your word is proclaimed now, that it would be proclaimed faithfully, that the same word that is in your scripture would be proclaimed faithfully to us. We pray that Christ would be lifted up and treasured. And we pray that you would have us receive him, receive his words, be instructed and warned, comforted, commanded by his words that we would respond as the, as the sheep would respond to the voice of a good shepherd. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good to have the kids here. And it is true that as you get older, you will understand more and more and more things, and that when you're older, you understand more from church than you do now. But you can still, even now, understand the most important things. You could tell the story that Jesus tells. Jesus told a parable. He tells the parable that there was a man who made a vineyard, a place where there's lots of grapes, and he has this beautiful vineyard that he makes. He does all the work to make it. He actually surrounds it with a stone fence to protect it from wild animals and from bad guys. And then in there, he also builds everything in that vineyard that's needed. There's a tower in there for people to watch over to make sure it's kept safe. He, he makes sure there's wells in there to drink water from. 
And then he rents it out to people. He lets other people use his vineyard. He says, you can, you can live there. You can have the grapes. You can eat from it. You can drink from it. This can be the place that you live. Now, it's not yours, but you can live in the vineyard that I made. Just the only thing I'm asking is that whenever there's fruit, that you would just give some, not all of it, that you'd give some of it to me. And so the king goes away to another country, and these people, they work in the vineyard, and they start to think that it's kind of like theirs. They forget that the vineyard belongs to someone else. And the king, when it's time for the fruit, the king sends a servant. Hey, I've come from the king. I would like to collect not all of it, but just some of the fruit, because remember, it's the king's vineyard. And the people in the vineyard, they beat up that servant and sent him back to the king. And so the king sends another servant. Hey, this is the king's vineyard. Make sure that you give him not all, but some of the fruit. And they beat that guy up too. And then he sends another, and they kill that guy. And then he sends another, and they beat that one. And he sends another, and they kill that one. And he sends another, and they beat that one. And he kills, they kill, and they beat, and they kill, and they beat. Until this, the king had no more servants left to send. And so the king says, I know. I have a son who I really love. He's the son who inherits everything that I own. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send that son. And I'm going to send that son. And he's going to say, remember, my dad is the king. And as they saw the son coming, they said, ha, this is the son. This guy's the heir. That means that when the king dies, that he inherits everything that the king has. What, if we kill the son of the king, then we'll be the king. And so the son comes and they beat him up and they kill him. And then Jesus said, what do you think the king will do to the people in that vineyard? Oh, he will come with his army and he will destroy them. And he will give that vineyard to people who love him and who respect him. That's the story that Jesus told. And the leaders of God's people, the church leaders, they knew Jesus was talking about them. Because they had been acting like the church was their house and not God's house. And so they wanted to kill Jesus. But they were too afraid of the people because the people knew that Jesus was actually God's son. The king's son. The most important things that we can remember from this, kids and adults, you can remember this and you can tell your parents this. God owns everything because he made it all. He made it, it's his. The whole world. And God made things good. It's kind of like the vineyard. He made a beautiful, good world that works for us to live in. And we don't own it, but he lets us live in it. He takes care of us, but it's his world. The church... Not just the building, but the people, the church belongs to God. And very often, people treat the world as if it belongs to us and not to God. And also, very often, the leaders of a church treat the church as if it belongs to them and not to God. So God sent prophets. That's what we have. The Bible is the, the, the record of God's, all the prophets that God sent to his people telling them, hey, the world is mine and the church is mine. And then eventually God sent his only 
beloved son, the Lord Jesus. To call the people to turn back to God, the king. And the people showed that they didn't love God by killing Jesus. This also teaches us that God will one day fix the world. He will. He promises he will fix the world. He will fix the world by Jesus coming back and he will get rid of all of the sinners off of the world. But before he did that, Jesus came to save sinners so that when he comes back, that we can be forgiven for disobeying God, for treating the world as if it belongs to us rather than God. Jesus took our punishment when he died on the cross so that when he comes back to make the world perfect and get rid of all the sin and sinners off of it, even guilty people like us can stay on the beautiful world that God will make perfect and live with because our sin has already been paid for by someone else. Jesus took what we would otherwise get in hell for disobeying God. He took that on the cross so that when Jesus comes back to make the world perfect, we can enjoy it with him rather than being removed from it. Okay. Our first point is this. Tribute belongs to the owner and builder of the vineyard. Tribute belongs to the owner and builder of the vineyard. Let's just read verses one and two again and we'll see this. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So, tribute belongs to the owner and builder of the vineyard. We see that all that the Lord made belonged to him. Everything he made, he owns. That's true of the people of God, the church, or Israel in the Old Testament. And it is true of the world. Everything he makes belongs to him. We see this in creation, don't we? We can see the beauty of the earth. You notice the beauty of the earth the other day, driving after all that crazy fog yesterday on the way back from having some fellowship with some church members. The fog had lifted and what was left is this beautiful frost on all the trees and the fields. It was gloriously beautiful. God made the world beautiful. He made the whole universe and he made it beautiful. Think about the structure of everything in your body, all the cells and how they are so beautifully and perfectly designed. The universe works It functions, and it functions perfectly for the flourishing of of life, especially human life. We don't have to go on about how the universe is perfectly finely tuned, the distance of the earth to the sun and the moon. All of these things are so perfectly tuned to set up life for us to enjoy. You might say, it's like someone built a vineyard and set it up perfectly and then placed us in it. In fact, that's exactly what happened. He placed us in the universe, set it up kind of like a vineyard for us, and it works. We didn't design this thing. We didn't build it. It works. It works perfectly. It was designed and built by someone else. We can see this in Psalm 24, first two verses. The earth is the Lord. And the fullness thereof, that means everything in it, the whole of the earth, everything that's contained, the world and those who dwell therein. Why? For he has founded it upon the seas and he established it on the rivers. It's his because he made it. 
Psalm 95, 1 to 7. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his, thanks, his, his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains also are his. The sea is his because he stole it. No. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. That's why it's his. He formed it. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What fools we are to find ourselves in this vineyard of creation, designed and built by someone else which works so wonderfully for the, for the flourishing of human life. And then to say, this is not a vineyard, this is an accident. Being an accident, it doesn't belong to someone else. In fact, it doesn't belong to anyone. Well, maybe it's actually ours. It's ours. But the Bible says in the same way that a person who finds and wakes up in a vineyard that has been planted by someone else, surrounded by walls by someone else, with a tower that was built by someone else, with wells that were built and dug by someone else. It is so foolish for that person to say, oh, this is just, this came to be on its own. The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is as foolish as waking up in a vineyard and saying, there is no vineyard builder. And so because it is the Lord's, tribute is due him. Tribute is due him. Now, we can ask, why did God create the world? Was it because he needed some extra income? He's planning for his retirement. One day, he's going to be too tired to work. He needs some passive income. He needs, he needs a rental property where people can work, and then just it makes income for him. No, God needs nothing. God is infinite, and he's satisfied and complete within himself. God needs nothing. Nothing adds to him. Nothing completes him or enhances him. His pleasure, God's pleasure, is eternal. He's satisfied and happy in himself, delighting in himself in that intra-Trinitarian love, the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So the reason he created the universe, this beautiful vineyard, is to reveal and reflect his glory. Not to gain more glory, not to gain more love, but to share his glory and share his love with things that he would make, things that were not God. Creation was and is a display of God's glory and character and beauty and wisdom and power and love so that it could be treasured and enjoyed by people who were not God. And of all the creatures, mankind was the peak, the pinnacle, the ultimate crown of creation, built perfectly for dependence on God and delight in God, built to reign over God's creation for the glory of God and to imitate and enjoy God. But he never would hand full authority over to men as if the world belonged to them. Wherever men and women were to exercise authority or dominion in the world. It was as vice regents, reigning, ruling, exercising dominion under his rule. Yes, he designed humanity to be kings and queens, 
But he reminds us in Scripture he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, what is the tribute that God would require of humanity? What is that tribute? You summarize that as worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. First of all, we see obedience. Now, this is his vineyard, and it must be marked by his own character, right? It's got the title, God's Vineyard, on it. That means as you walk in, it should reflect his glory and his character. Things that he loves should be loved. Things that he hates should be hated. Obedience. God's law and his design. God's law and his design are not in competition. They are in a beautiful unity. And so obedience is due him. Obedience to what? Obedience to his law. And his law is summarized as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the, the law is summarized in those two ways, but it's expanded in the Ten Commandments. How is it that we are to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind? What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourself? And so obedience, it's his world, it's his vineyard. Obedience is do him, whatever he commands but also worship. What is worship? Now, no sermon is going to be able to define that for you fully. But one essential element here is illustrated by the parable. Worship is recognizing that all things belong to him. The recognition that this is God's world because he made it, that all things belong to him. That means all good things come from his hand. It's a heart of worship, recognizing that everything belongs to him, that he is the creator. All good things are are from him. Every breath, every snowflake, every ear of corn, every sizzling steak, every eucalyptus plant, or bowl of rice, or ray of sun on a chilly day, or every centimeter of shade on a hot day. All of these things are from his hand. And that includes every discovery of how certain elements relate to one another and they can be combined to support and beautify human life in astonishing ways. That includes the microchip and the microwave and everything else that has micro in front of it. All of these things, God designed the world and the elements to be able to be combined in these ways that it it enhances human life. These are from God's hands, you could say, and they certainly are from God's minds and from God's loving generosity. So in other words, it is his beautifully furnished vineyard, including the complexity of our own bodies. It is his And we recognize that he is generously offering it to us for our pleasure and our delight. To recognize that he is God and there is no other. No one else can claim that the world is under their supreme authority. No one else can say they are the true and final owner of all things. And so to worship God is to acknowledge that he and only he is the true creator and sustainer of all things. And that as we walk in his vineyard, the universe, all the wondrous things that we see and hear and feel and smell and taste, recognizing that whatever beauty and glory they have is just a mere reflection, a pale reflection of the glory and beauty and wisdom and perfection and justice of the creator and the owner of the vineyard. So to worship God is to recognize 
this is all God's. To admit it and to praise him for it, to enjoy that he is the owner of all things. So we talked about the the vineyard as the world and the universe, and that's true, but it narrows down in this parable, the vineyard of the church. You could say the church is the vineyard of the vineyards. If the whole universe is a vineyard, the church is the vineyard in the vineyard. And the people of God in the old covenant, the people of Israel, God compared them to a vineyard. In fact, Isaiah, one of the opening parts of Isaiah in Isaiah 5, he sings a song of the vineyard about how God did this, how he, he planted Israel and he, he gave them a vineyard and he made them a wall and he made them a tower and he dug cisterns and wells for them so that they could live in a land that God gave to them. Much like the Garden of Eden was the vineyard of the vineyards in the newly created world. Or how the the earth itself is the vineyard amongst the universe. And how Israel was the vineyard of God amongst all the nations before Christ. God's special vineyard with special care, special affection, special protection. The word of God to clearly guide us. We have the promises and the commands of God, a covenant relationship with God, not a, not a casual relationship, with, but a, a covenant relationship with God, one based on oath sworn, a serious covenanted sworn relationship with God. Now the border of this vineyard increased with the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so now we see the church, the vineyard of God spreads to all corners of the world, wherever there are people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ They are part of that vineyard, God's special creation within creation, special and delightful church. And in the church, his lordship is acknowledged and enjoyed. Yes, he made the whole world, but in the church, this is known and enjoyed. Where he is worshiped and a particular people are cared for, it is the household of God is the household of the Lord, and it is his household. It's not ours. It's his household. Christ is the head of the household. And it is entered. You enter this vineyard. You become part of this vineyard by trusting in Christ, by faith in Christ. Not by birth, not by works, but by turning away from rebellion, realizing there is a king, there is a vineyard owner, and you have sinned against that king But the king sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven of your rebellion and be brought into that family. This is a gift received by faith. Oh, Christians, think about how lovely it is to be in the vineyard owned by the Lord, which he created, the church, which he takes responsibility for, which he jealously provides protection for, which he loves and cares for, which he swears to care for and guard and defend. When you own a property, this is one of the crazy things when a young person buys their first property, their first home. It's all on you. You take full responsibility of what happens in that property. If there's a problem, the buck stops with you. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that the vineyard of the church belongs to the Lord? He takes full responsibility for it. 
We don't, he does, it's his. He will protect it and he will provide for it. He will love and care for it. He swears to guard and defend and protect. Isn't it a delight that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong, we're not just neighbors of the Lord, a good neighbor. We belong to his vineyard that he jealously and perfectly cares for. Our second point is this. Church leaders are to be under shepherds. Church leaders are to be under shepherds. Now, the primary target of this parable was not the citizens of Israel and for our context for the citizens of the church, though they, of course, are condemned as well by it, but it is primarily about the leaders. How do we know that? The leaders knew it was about them. You see how the, how the story ends here? They knew he was saying this parable against them. So the primary purpose of this parable is to point at what leaders do and leaders do poorly. And again, what they should do well. The leaders of God's people were to be at most princes. Even David was called, yes, he was a king that people would see that, but David was called the prince of God's people. And the priests were to serve God's people. Now, the leaders of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, were to exercise authority. Yes, they have authority, but not the authority to create rules and not the authority to treat themselves as kings. It was the authority to ensure God's people treated God as the vineyard owner. The authority to ensure that God's people treated God as the king. The authority to make sure that people treated God as the head of the household. The authority to teach God's law. To explain God's law. To help the people obey God's law. And to insist that the people obey God's law. To teach people, God's people to worship God as he instructed. Not to add new ways of worship. We saw that very early on in Israel's history, this was tried by Aaron's sons. Oh, I'm a priest. That means I can invent new ways of worshiping. And God killed them on the spot. They're not the owner. They're not God. They're not the builder of the vineyard. God is all of those things. The leaders of God's people were to help God's people to worship and delight in the God who loved them first. To insist that God's people worship God, not the gods of the nations, not the gifts that God gave them, and certainly not worship the priests, but God and God alone. But the pattern is that leaders of God's people treat themselves as owners. The temptation of God's people was to treat their leaders as owners, to treat the kings and the the priests as the owners of the vineyard. Now, why would people want that? Why would they want their leader to be treated as God or the king or the head of the household rather than God? Why would they want that? Well, it's easy. You cannot control God. And so if God is the head of the household, you're not going to be able to control him. But if a man is, you could control him. Maybe we can be like the nations, they said, in how they follow and worship their gods. And of course, the church leaders and in the Old Testament, the, Israel, the, the leaders of Israel fell into that temptation to act as though they were the owner of the house rather than a servant with authority. Maybe they thought they had ideas that were better than God's ideas. God, you know, we, we, you gave us these rules, but I just have to say it's not cutting it. 
you gave it to us, you know, with Moses, but, you know, it's been a few hundred years and those are outdated rules. So I, I feel I have the authority to update the rules. No. Or maybe they did it because they wanted to get glory and they wanted the people to trust them and praise them in a way that only God should. Or maybe it was fearing people rather than God. The leaders of God's people often feared the nations around them more than God. And so they wanted to be able to change the rules. They wanted to act like the king who could change the rules so that the nations around them wouldn't be mean to them or wouldn't hate them. Or maybe the leaders demanded it and they could not stand up to, sorry, the the people demanded it and they could not stand up to the leaders. And so they acted like the leader, the the king of God's people to save their leadership or maybe their their, their job or their freedom and sometimes to save their lives. And the Lord regularly reminded his people and their leaders that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was the owner and builder of the vineyard, the beloved husband of the bride, the beloved father of the beloved children. And that takes us to our third point, which is the patience of the Lord in the face of rebellion. The patience of the Lord in the face of rebellion. Let's read three to five, and we'll see this very clearly. And they, and so this is, again, uh, carrying on from the parable. God is sending servants, or the king is sending servants to get tribute. And they took him, the first servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The point is here that God's people sinned. They rebelled against their God, the owner of the vineyard, the leaders and the people. Now, was it the chicken or the egg that started it? Was it the leaders wanting to act like God and the, the, the people followed? Or was it the people wanted their leaders to act like God and the, and the leaders came along with it? And the Bible gives us actually both reasons. And so what was the Lord's response? When his people, who he had set apart and set them up so perfectly, when they rebelled against him, what did he do? Did he wipe them out? No. He sent a prophet. And then another prophet. And then another prophet to warn the shepherds of God's people. Prophets were often sent to the kings and priests and warn them. To call them to repent. And also to require that the people repent over and over and over again. And these prophets were not bringing new commands but reminding them, calling them back to God, calling them back to God's commands, calling them back to God's worship, and also reminding them of God's gospel promises that there is forgiveness for their sins if they will hide themselves in the sacrifice that God would one day make of the Messiah. And the pattern, if you read the Old Testament, is a bad one. Prophets were rejected. That's the pattern. Leaders rejected the prophets and they resented it that the prophet wouldn't let me act like I'm the king. The prophet wouldn't let the king act like the king. No, you're the prince. God is the king. And so the kings often killed the prophets or the people killed the prophets. They mistreated them and even killed them. And what was odd is the next generation would claim to love that prophet that the previous generation killed. Oh, we love Isaiah. We'd never kill Isaiah. And then a prophet comes up that says the same thing as Isaiah says, and they kill him. And over and over and over and over again, what this is meaning to 
well up in us as we hear this story is to consider the Lord's incredible patience. Why did he send so many prophets? Why did he keep doing this? Why did he keep promising forgiveness for their sins, knowing that one day in order to forgive their sins, it would have to be placed on his son? Why did he show this? Well, after the first prophetic murder, you'd expect God to wipe these guys out, and he would be right and good to do so. He would rightly be called both a loving and just God because he had shown love. And yet he displays slow anger, patience, prophet after prophet. Dear church, what we see in Israel's history, we see in our own lives, don't we? If you've been a Christian for any, lo- any length of time, you will see this in your own heart as well. We see this in church history, God bearing with the church, bringing her back over and again, patient while she rebels, not allowing her to rebel, calling her back, insisting that she does. Every time the world tells her to embrace new ideas, she just does the church. And he brings her back and he calls her and he disciplines her and he helps her to repent and he's so patient. But also in your own life, you've seen this. How patient has the Lord been with you? Oh, he's been so patient with me. Causes me to be ashamed at how patient he's needed to be with me, but also rejoice in how patient he has been. How patient has the Lord been to you as you grow, while you sin? Do you look back on the days of your early life as a Christian and think, oh, why did I do that? And even know, and the Lord is so patient. So the point of the story, dear friends, is not that God doesn't punish. The point of the story is not that God ought not punish. The point of the story is that God ought to punish, and yet he is slow and patient And so I would remind you, if you have not run to Christ, do not mistake God's patience for tolerance. Today is the day of salvation. You do not know when your last day to do so will be. The day when it will be made clear if you are now his if you are a straying sheep or if you are indeed a goat among the herd. This is true for members as it is for guests. Do not take for granted that you can continue to sin. Run to the patient Lord and he is eager to forgive based on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Do not mistake his patience for slowness or disinterest or approval. He has given you at least up until this moment to repent, and you do not know if he will give you more. Fourth point is this, just a short one. The killing of the son demonstrates the problem. Let's read 6 to 12. He had another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
This was the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that, they had, that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Hi. So the death of the son was not the moment that these people became rebels. You can see that, right? The death of the son was not the moment that these people became rebels. When is it that they became rebels? In fact, these people became rebels before the first prophet was sent to them. They were rebels as soon as in their minds they thought, this is our vineyard. They knew that they were not the owners from the start. But they wanted to be able to act like they were the owners. And so we can let this turn in on ourselves here to have this lens look at us. And we see that all sin at its root is actually known rebellion. Creatures acting as though they were creator. Well, I have the freedom to, act, to make rules for myself. Creatures acting as if they were the owner or that God is not the owner. And the Bible is very clear that the knowledge of God is known to all men and women. The Bible is not needed to know that there is one God. There is one creator who owns it, who was not created, who is eternal and infinite and invisible and holy, a God who we owe obedience and worship to, and that it is sinful to worship a statue rather than him. And against whom we've all sinned. The Bible's very clear in Romans 1. Every single person knows this. And yet we suppress the truth. As foolish as it would be to be people who stumble upon a vineyard and act as if it was an accident or that no one owned it or maybe somehow we just forgot that we made it, but we did. But the gospel, the gospel is not known to all. The gospel is not known to all. The law of God, the existence of God is known to all. It is absolutely known to all, but the gospel is not known to all. The gospel is known only to those who have heard of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a merciful, a mercy sent to rebels. Rebels who were already guilty before the son came to them. God sending that son was a mercy that no one deserved. And if he never sent that son, nobody could say, well, look, why did you did? Look, we haven't sinned against you because we never heard about your son coming. You were guilty before that. In the gospel, as John will tell us in John 3, the gospel does not condemn. Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. And when the gospel is heard and rejected, it reveals that someone has, is already condemned because why else would you refuse the air? Why else would you do that unless you were trying to replace the heir and act as if you were the king? Notice that the leaders knew the parable was about them and that there was no repentance. It wasn't because they were actually good tenants and they just misunderstood who the, who the king's son was. No, they knew very well. But notice they feared the crowd instead of fearing God. They loved their position of power more than they loved God or they would have accepted his son. Dear friends, all sin is rebellion and the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates that for us. It is a rebellion against the heir, the king's son, and the king's ownership of all the world. Lastly, 
Finally, we want to look at this point. The judgment of the king restores the vineyard. The judgment of the king restores the vineyard. The king does not ignore the death of his son. He doesn't ignore the death of his son. The death of his son prompts the restoration of the vineyard. Did you notice that? He doesn't also burn the vineyard up. What does he do? He actually restores the vineyard by getting rid of all the rebels and all the sinners out of it. He cleans them out. That's what he does. He actually restores. He's committed to that vineyard. And we see this is true with the world. We often forget that the gospel includes the restoration of the entire world. When a Christian dies, their body goes into the grave, their soul goes to heaven to be with God, and from there they wait. They wait the restoration of all things when God will renew the vineyard. Well, he will renew the, the universe. He will make it new. He says, I behold, behold, I come to make all things new. He comes to restore that vineyard, not to annihilate it. And yes, this old one will be burned up, but it will be replaced with something that's not a brand new creation in that he's replacing it, but a restored and renewed creation. And his judgment of sin is because he is committed to restoring that. The same is true with the church. The judgment of the king restores the vineyard where he expels unbelievers from the people of God. And then he brings in people who he gives faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to become part of this vineyard. And he does this by the judgment or the wrath of God. And thank God that this is done in two ways. The first way that the judgment of the son, the wrath of the son, restores the vineyard is that the Lord Jesus Christ died for some of those rebels in the vineyard. So that when the king brings that condemnation on, 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 uh, for people for their sin, that they will be spared because the son was already punished for their rebellion. And the Lord Jesus reminds the people that this, is not, this should not have been a surprise. And so he turns, he turns to Psalm 118. He said, have you not heard this? Have you not read that the one who would be rejected, the son of God who would be rejected, the Messiah who would be rejected, is actually the cornerstone. He's actually the stone that would be chosen as the most important part of the building. This was God's plan all along, to restore the vineyard through the death of his son. And dear friends, your only hope of being part of the eternal vineyard of God, the new heavens and earth, where only righteousness dwells, where we will save from things like sin and rebellion and cancer and abuse, and sadness and lies, your only hope is to run to the cornerstone to run to the son who was slain instead of you. And if you do, you will never be put to shame. When he comes to restore that vineyard, you will be part of it because you were found in the son. This is the offer of the gospel, dear friends. Reject the life of a rebel. See yourself in that illustration. See yourself in that parable. I have acted the way those wicked tenants acted. How many times have I acted like I am the owner of this thing rather than a tenant of the king who owns it all? And isn't it true that all of my sin 
is just a way to replace the error. Dear friend, have you obeyed everything God has said? You certainly not. Have you worshipped God as he said that you have, giving thanks to him for all things? You have certainly not. No one in this room has. And so our only hope is not to be among the tenants who never did anything wrong. There aren't any. But to be found in the son who in fact did nothing wrong. Let us not forget that word that Jesus very intentionally uses. How is the son described? Open up your Bibles and look. How does he describe that son? His beloved son. This is the offer, dear friends. You can either be a rebel who will receive the wrath of God, or you can be not just a forgiven rebel, not just a servant in God's house, not just a friend of God, not even a forgotten but adopted child. The offer of the gospel is to receive the position of a beloved son. Can you imagine how terrible it would be to be treated by God as a rebel? You wouldn't even be able to say you don't deserve it. Imagine that that would be your standing with God to be treated by God as a rebel. That this picture, this this story just tells an illustration of imagine. But then, imagine how sweet it would be for eternity to dwell in the vineyard of God, the new heavens and earth. Not just as a forgiven person, but as somebody who who is as beloved to God as the Lord Jesus is. Think about that whenever you are tempted to turn away. When you are tempted by persecution or temptation to turn away from Christ, that there'll be something better. Oh, friend, think about that. The terror of being an enemy and the sweetness of being found in the beloved son. Flee to him by faith. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we, are, we see ourselves in this parable. We have acted as owners, as creators, foolishly. How foolish, how silly and wicked that is. And we are so grateful that you have sent your son. You, you didn't need to. That was, as we're reading that story, it seems foolish. Why would you do that? Why would that king send his son? He knows what they're going to do. Oh, Lord, we know you sent your son out of love, and we are so grateful. That was our only hope. That is the cornerstone, the only option for us. That is our salvation, that you did send your son to rebels. Oh, Lord, let us be found in Christ. Let us turn away from the silliness of rebellion, the foolishness and the wickedness of rebellion. Lord, let us never see our sin as merely just Mistakes, but Lord, let us see it as truly what it is, rebellion against a beautiful, good God. And let us hide ourselves in Christ, the Son, the heir. And Lord, give us ears and eyes and hearts to treasure and meditate on this sweetness of being beloved by you. And that Christ is the only way for that. 
so that we would flee to Christ. We pray that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen.